Uh, we're transitioning now into the, in, into the message. Uh, and last week, we wrapped up a series called The Apostles' Creed. And I got to be honest with you, I was a little nervous coming into that series because I, I resisted for years and years. Like, hey, we should do a series on the creed. You know, other people are doing it. I think it's really awesome. And I'm like, no, we're not going to because you either grew up with it and it's like giving you post-traumatic flashbacks or you didn't grow up with it and it's just weird. So we're not going to do it because it alienates everybody. God did some things in my heart and we ended up doing it, committed to just four parts and I wish it was longer uh, because your response, the number of people who, who didn't say that was weird, the number of people who didn't say, man, I was giving me these, these flashbacks to a worse time, the number of people who said, man, that creed and in the, in, in the way we approached it, it added this breadth and this depth to my faith. Oh, I'm just, I'm so grateful for it. So you guys were all such great sports through kind of a, a, a weird and a little bit unusual series for us here at Encounter. And I want to say thank you for that. We're done with that series, but in a way, we're kind of doing this like add-on type of thing because we stood together and we said this creed and it has this repetition built into it. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus Christ, his son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe, I believe, I believe. And what this next series is about that we're kicking off today is saying, okay, I believe in those things, but... I believe in those things, but I still have some reservations. I believe in those things, but I still have some hesitations. Uh, I believe in those things, but I still have my doubts. Part two of the series. I believe in those things, but I still have, the, I have a hard time like totally jumping in, totally trusting him completely with my whole self. That's part three. I believe in God, but I'm not sure I know him. At least all that well. And that's what we're picking up here today. I believe in God, but I'm not sure I know him. And, and we kind of enter into this space and we recognize there's a, there's a spectrum of knowing something or a spectrum of knowing someone, isn't there? There was a time in my life when I could have told you the entire batting order and batting average of the 1991 Detroit Tigers, all right? And, and, and they were not a remarkable team. I was just like in second grade and just way into it, man. I had all the baseball cards that I like poured over. I was looking for one today and I couldn't find one. I think my parents threw away my collection. Could have been worth a fortune, but nevertheless. I do have Pokemon cards today and maybe this relates to wherever you are. And you pour over these cards and you know all the little, all the little details about every single person or in this case, creature, and, and I looked over these cards, and I knew the batting average according to the year, and there's Cecil Fielder, and there's Lou Whitaker, there's Alan Tramley. You guys know I'm like down the nostalgic road over here. And I knew so much about them. But I'm telling you, especially as a kid who grew up without cable, I didn't know a thing of the actual players on the team. And in fact, I had only watched a, a handful of games. I knew a lot about them, but I simply didn't know them. Now contrast that with the person that I met when I was 16 years old and ended up marrying her shortly after my 21st birthday, which is wild, okay? Just to like point, because I do weddings now and I'm looking at 20-somethings and I'm going, your children, like your ultrasounds <laughs> committing, you're not ready to do this. <laughs> and it's like, well, how old, how old were you? And I'm like, don't, don't, I don't talk about that. <laughs> right? You know, like I, we, and this, so this is a person I've known for my, basically my entire adult life. And we've just, we just weaved our lives together like that, right? And, and we've grown and we've changed as people and we've grown and we've changed together, 
hand in hand all the time. And so there's just stuff that we have between us that like I can't explain to everybody else. Like I can tell you what kind of day at work she had just by how she hangs up the keys on the key ring when she comes home. I'm like, let's give that a little space, right? Or maybe jump in and ask depending on how it goes, right? There's stuff that we use like this weird kind of like just between us sort of language of like sounds, nonverbal. And kids don't believe that we have our own like little language on some things and so they'll quiz us on it and then when we like respond and when we can talk to each other and translate at the exact same time what each other is saying it weirds the kids right out like they don't get it right because we have this thing I ran out of shampoo I used her shampoo I thought she was following me the entire day <laughs> because I just I know the smell and our lives have just I don't just know about my wife I know her. What we're talking about today is a simple question. How do you know God? How do you know God? I think that if we're honest, some of us would approach our relationship with God, our knowledge of God, and we would say that I know him by his reputation. I read his card. I know some of the highlights. Created the world. That's a highlight. Ten plagues, the frogs, the hail, the darkness, the blood, some more that I can't think of right now. I know the high, the marching band around Jericho where the walls came a-tumbling down. Like, I've studied it. I know the God. I know his reputation. How do you know God? Some of you know God because he's like your parent's friend. You know God because you grew up with him, uh, kind of in the house. And you didn't really relate to him or you didn't really see him as a real person until, until much later. And maybe only right now you're realizing, my, my parents' friends lived real lives. And they might be interesting people. I just never saw them that way. And you relate to God and you're like, man, he's a real person who has lived a really interesting existence. It'd be worth me getting to know him a little more. Some of you know God because... He's like a distant relative that you see a couple times a year, Christmas and Easter, and he shows up, and that's fine. And we'll see you again next Christmas. How do you know God? Maybe for you, he's like this rich grandparent that you go to whenever you need something, or more honestly, just kind of really, really want something. And, and, and all year long, like you make sure to say please and thank you to keep them on your good side, like that grandparent. All year long, you kind of like write them cards, you know, just like file it away in the bank because you know there's going to be a time when you're going to have to monetize those cards, <laughs> cash in and, and make your great big ask. How do you know God? The thing of it is this morning is that when Jesus opens up and Jesus talks about this thing, knowing God, in his world famous Sermon on the Mount speech, he gets to the end of it or just one paragraph short of the end of it. And he goes, you know, it's possible that you actually don't know him at all. And for me, it's a terrifying thought. So let's go there and let's hear what Jesus has to say. Um, Matthew chapter seven, we're gonna just read through a few verses here very briefly. Matthew seven, starting off in verse 21, it says this. Jesus says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's a repetition there, Lord, Lord. 
Uh, it's meant to signify the person who says this is communicating this very sincerely. It's a deeply held belief, but a deeply held belief, if wrong, doesn't do you any good. I'm just going to kind of set that there. Uh, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not, number one, prophesy in your name? And in your name, to drive out demons. And in your name, three, perform many miracles. Whoa. Jesus replies, then I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. It's passages like that that kind of keep me up at night. It's passages like that that, that kind of shake my faith a little bit, right? That it's possible that these guys could go before God on that day and Jesus says to them like, man, you did all of this stuff, driving out demons, performing miracles, prophesying. You did all this stuff and on top of that, you did that in my name and still at the end, Jesus says, yeah, but I didn't, I mean, I didn't know you. They like, didn't know you. I mean, come on, like, like you're prophesying demons, miracles in your name, man. These are the rock stars of the world at the time. These are the people, the, the, the faith leaders with the Wikipedia pages. These are the faith leaders with the, with the conference talks. These are the people who write the books that build faith of people like you and me, right? Like if they don't get in, what shot do I have? What shot do any of us have? Go away from me. You evildoer. We pull back a layer on that and we can start to see that there's, that there's a, a lot going on uh, in the world at the time because we know a great deal amount uh, of the first century uh, Middle East, this, this region where Jesus was doing ministry, and we know that this was not a faithless region of the world. Far from it. It was a faith-filled part of the world. And there were all kinds of religious groups all vying for the attention, vying for followers for adherence to their particular uh, group, for their particular sect. Uh, there was the, the Pharisees, and you hear a lot about those throughout the Gospels. The Sadducees, another big group. Uh, there was the Essenes, there was the Zealots. You can start to think of these people all like separate divisions. You might even call them today denominations. And they're all kind of like good at some things, and maybe they're not so great, or they don't emphasize some, some other things. And they're all like trying to outdo each other. To try to like prove to everybody else, well, we got, the, we got the most miracles, or we got the most prophecies, or we got the most this, that, or the other thing. And, and don't you want to be a part of one of our groups? Because we're doing so much for God. And it's in his name. And one religious scholar on this passage says that Jesus is encouraging us to move beyond external religion and toward intimate connection with the living God. In other words, it's like Jesus is saying, I don't just want your deeds. I want you. I, just, I don't just want your works. I want all of you. And for me, it is, it, it's tough, it's tough, and I don't think I'm the only one to say, it is so much easier to do something for God than it is to simply be with God, isn't it? And maybe it's a Midwestern thing. I think it's, I think it's an American thing all throughout. And I, and I really do think that we have taken this art of human doing to an extent, an unhealthy extent on a global scale that everybody else looks at us and says, how in the world? Where, do you, where does that come from? 
Every once in a while, I talk to people like from other cultures. I've got relatives uh, that live in, uh, in the Netherlands, and, and, and they'll come over, and we can spend the entire weekend hanging out and sharing stories. And the entire time, they never ask, like, what do you do for a living? And it's like, that's the only thing that we ask about. That's the first thing that we ask about, right? And I'm like, well, what, well you know, what, what do you do for a living? And they're like, I don't know, I, I sell stuff. But like, what, do you, what gets you excited? You know, what, what, do you, what gets you out of bed in the morning? And, and I'm like, what stuff do you sell? Right? Like, we, we can't wrap our minds around anything except for, for what you do. And Jesus comes and he breaks that whole thing down and he says, what if it wasn't about anything that you did? I mean, even if you prophesied, even if you drove out demons, even if you did miracles, and if you did all these things in my name, I mean, that's really not the point, is it? In fact, it's worse than the point. Because if you hung your faith on only the things that you believed and only the things that you did, there's a a word for that. It's called becoming a religious person, and it's not the most healthy thing in the world. The danger of believing without knowing is becoming religious. And you can tell that I'm not using that word very positively. The danger of believing in God without knowing, without having this closeness, without having this intimacy with God is becoming a religious person. And, and I want to share a little bit about like, why that's dangerous and then some, some healthy, healthy things to replace that with. A little bit of, of why it's dangerous. The first thing is, when we believe without knowing and when we do all these things without being in the presence of God, without developing, fostering this intimate, close relationship with him, we're in danger of becoming a judgmental person. I don't think that you can live your life into old age if God blesses you that way. I don't think you can live 40 years, 60 years of being a religious person without developing a judgmental heart. And the reason why I say that is because when you believe in God and you believe things about him and you don't actually know the person of God, he isn't actually God, he's a formula that you have just sort of like tried to hack for your behalf. Like, like God is a series of levers and knobs to pull and to twist in order to get things for yourself, usually to make yourself healthy, wealthy, and wise, to develop a, a secure financial world around you and stable relationships around you. And once you've like figured out the exact combination of levers and knobs to pull and to twist to get yourself healthy, wealthy, and wise, you start looking at the next generation and saying, okay, what are my levers that I can do for my kids to make sure that they grow up in stable relationships, that they grow up financially set, that they have everything that they need, more than that, a lot of things that they want. And you're like, you know what? I think I got God figured out. Like, if it works, and you're in your levers and your knobs, and, you, and it turns out that you have a good life, you're like, I got God figured out. And you don't have God figured out. You have a portion of the formula figured out. But you look at somebody who comes along, and they're going like, man, I don't have God figured out, and I'm not living according to the formula. I'm not pulling the right knob and twisting the right lever. And you, and you look at that person, and you go, I've got a word for you. You are un- Godlike, you're ungodly. You're doing it wrong. And if you just pull the right lever and twist the right knob, if you just, then everything could be fixed for you, but you don't do it. And so maybe just dismiss yourself from the community. And some of you guys have been that person before. And you've heard things about God. And you've heard that Jesus is grace and God is love. 
And you said, that's what I need in my life. And so there's something that like drew you into the person of God, into the community of God. And as you gotten drawn in, the person, the judgmentalism on the other side said, no, 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 I'm sorry, you're not pulling the levers and twisting the knobs right, so I need you to just go over there and excuse yourself from the community. And you're going, I thought that God was love and gracious and all I got is a judgmental formula in response. And so you're going, thank you, I will excuse myself. And if that's you or if, if that's somebody that you know, I want us to have the humility to say that if I've lived your life and I've walked in your shoes, I would believe the same things that you believe. But before you reject it completely, I want to humbly suggest that what you rejected isn't God, isn't Jesus demonstrated and illustrated for us. God demonstrated and illustrated for us in the scriptures. It's a caricature of God. It's a formula of God at best. And before you reject him, just know that you're rejecting a poor caricature of him. It's very difficult to live your life as a religious person, believing without intimacy, without closeness with God for very long, without becoming a judgmental person. It's also very dangerous and very easy to live your life as a religious person and to not have and to not eventually become a stranger to God. See, this is the thing about the formula, about like pulling the knobs and, and twisting the thing. And sometimes it, it works out perfectly, and so you think like, I hacked the system. I, I know how to do this. And then it makes you judgmental. Sometimes you pull the lever and you twist the thing, and it doesn't work out. Life doesn't work out. A layoff comes. A divorce comes. The bottom falls out of your life. And you look up at God, and you're like, what's the deal, man? Like, I was, I was respectful for you this whole time. I thought I pulled the lever. I thought I twisted. I thought I did everything right. And God is going, man, you never knew me. If you would have known me, you would have shown it. If you would have known me, you would have never gone there. If you known me, you would have lived your whole life differently. If you would have cultivated a relationship with me, my values would have become your values. And, and you would have gone there. You wouldn't have asked her. You wouldn't have signed that thing. You would have hung out with those people. Like, come on. You don't know me at all. You're a stranger to me. And worse, worse than that, worse than being a stranger of God and being judgmental of God is becoming a stranger to God's love. Because everything is performance-based. And I didn't know him all that well. I, did, I wasn't all that close to God, but, but dude, I was, I was in church and I was sitting in the row. And when Dirk went... Three minutes over message runtime. I didn't complain. I didn't send him an email. I wanted to, and I held back. <laughs> I pulled the lever. I twisted an arm. I was patient, and I know that's what God, God wants from me. My performance was spot on. When a need came up, when an opportunity came up, I put the money in. I wrote the check. And I never became intimately acquainted with the love of God in my life. I don't want to leave you there. If you're having this realization now that, that maybe, maybe you don't know God, at least all not that well, you can. You can. Everything that the Sermon on the Mount is about isn't about Jesus pushing us away. It's about God pulling us into him. 
It's about Jesus saying, listen, I don't want you to accidentally switch the thing for this other thing. I don't want to accidentally switch like this relationship that I want to have with you marked by closeness and intimacy for this caricature of twisting a lever, pulling this knob. What I want is something so much more than that. Don't settle for the pat easy answers. Get to know me and who I am. He was, you can get to know me. And the way that we cultivate that closeness with God, the way that we find this intimacy with God is the same way that all of us find closeness with anybody else. And so I want to put three suggestions on the screen, fill them out a little. And what I'm going to ask you to do, I don't think any of us have the capacity to like hold three ideas in our heads and in our hearts at the same time. I have them written down. I can't even do that. And I spent all week on this thing. All right? But just one of them. I'm going to put three of mine. We're going to fill it out. And I just, which one, which one is the one that you're going like, man, if I lack closeness and intimacy with God, it's probably this that I'm going to start doing this week to start developing that relationship. And the first one is time. Just time. Unscheduled, unstructured, just hanging out, shooting the breeze kind of time. Not with a best friend, not even with a spouse, but with your Father in heaven, just spending time with him. And for me, this is my one. This is the, th- this is the thing that I'm just, I was reminded all the time, but again earlier this week, where It's just like, dude, sometimes the efficiency of how you structure your day and your life is absolutely annoying to all of the people in your life because it's like, hey, cool conversation. I actually got to get running. And And I do this with God. I'm coming to the realization today that I think that some of this like efficiency desire that I have spills over into my commitment of like, you know what, I think I want to work for a church. I think I want to become a pastor because then I can do work and I can do Jesus stuff and it's the same and how efficient is that? Right, like I'm coming to this realization like this week going, oh man, I'm so guilty of this thing, you know? I was golfing with a friend and it was, oh, it was, it was, it was bad because he was taking way too long. If you ever golf with somebody and they, I got things to do, you know? He's just like lining up the putt. I call him Patrick Cantley and I assess him a stroke penalty. We got in such an argument on the, on the way home about like, dude, just be present on the golf course. Like take a moment and make a moment, you're right? And he told me, he goes, because I care about you, I'm not gonna have this conversation anymore. <laughs> I think I might struggle with this time thing. <laughs> In a relationship, unstructured, just hanging out, time. And then, you, and then you sit down with somebody who does it well. And it's like a breath of fresh air. You sit down with somebody and they could be facing extraordinary circumstances. Just setbacks that in my little world I couldn't imagine. And, and, and they face that with this unanxious, optimistic tone and posture. And the comment is, you know what? I know Jesus, and I know he's got a plan, and so he will work it out. And that's good enough for me. That's good. That's honestly, like you can be real. Honestly, that's good. That's good enough for me. I want that. And it only comes, that kind of intimacy, that kind of closeness only comes with time spent with somebody. Time is the first one. Transparency is the second one. Like getting a little real, this is going to be new to some of us because for some of us, we kind of go through the same patterns. If you were to audit your prayer life and just what are some of the prayers, you know, if you just uh, like see the script of them, would it be the same thing over and over and over again? 
And to some extent, like, that's fine. I tell my wife I love her every single day, and I'm going to continue doing that. That's healthy. But if that's all our conversation is, if that's all our communication is, at some point it becomes kind of, kind of unhealthy. And so this is going to be a huge challenge for some of us. But what I'm going to ask you to do is just to consider, if you've got to work on this openness in this relationship with God, this transparency, maybe it's time to shelve those memorized prayers. There is nothing wrong with the Lord's Prayer. It's great. Jesus taught us how to pray. We should incorporate that. But if that's the only prayer in your bucket, it might be time to put that one on the shelf and start to develop this relationship with God. For some of us, being transparent is being a little bit more honest, and maybe it means not being quite so polite all the time. Oh, did I just get you there? Midwesterners, right? Like, dear Jesus, I'm a little frustrated about what Karen did at work today. And it's like, hold on. God's like, are you, are you frustrated with Karen right now? Or are you mad as a hornet at Karen in accounting right now? Like, what's the deal? What's going on? Be honest about that. And it's like, I can't, I can't be honest with him like that. I'm too nice for that. I'm too polite for that. Right? Some of us dudes, you know, kind of going like, yeah, Jesus, yeah, I've got a little bit of lust going on in my heart. Like, really? Is that all that is right now? Is that all that is honestly? Well, I mean, honestly, it is a lot more than that, but I don't want to tell God because he's not going to like to hear that. Have you ever thought for just a second that when you share something with God, it's not the first time that he's hearing about it? <laughs> like, he knows already. Like, we have this fear, like, I don't want to say it out loud because then it kind of makes it real, right? And God's like, I kind of know everything already, whatever you're about to say. It's not going to surprise me. It's not going to be like, whoo, man, I've been God a long time, but that is a new one right over there, right? I think sometimes our prayers need to get a little less G-rated. If we're honest, if we're really going to be transparent and develop closeness and intimacy, I'm not even talking about PG, PG PG-13. Some of us, it's going to go into the R language. That's why Jesus says, when you pray, go in your closet, close the door, because the kids don't want to hear about what you have to say to God. (laughs) That's terrible exegesis, by the way. That is not what that verse is about. I went to Grand Rapids Theological Seminary, if anybody asked. That was... <laughs> I did. Um, but the point remains, and if we read the Psalms, we get it. When David is cracking open his heart and he's pouring it all along and he's saying, how long, God, are you going to put up with this? And it's got kind of this accusatory nature to it. God, this, what I'm experiencing, I know is not within your nature. When are you going to do something about it? Be transparent. And almost like you don't want to tell him because it's like saying it out loud would hurt his heart. And I also want to tell you on this point to remember that whatever you have to say to God, he knows about it already. And he also held it in his heart when he died for you. He knew about it. He knows about it. And he chooses and he chose to love you through it. Maybe it's a time thing. Maybe it's a transparency thing. Maybe it's an obedience and submission thing. This is tough. This is tough to lay it down before him and say, God, the answer is yes. It doesn't even matter what the question is I'm in. But I also want to tell you that this principle of mutual submission, 
Uh, This principle of saying, listen, I'm going to take everything that I have, all of my time, all of my talent, all of my treasures, all of my resources, all of what and who I am, and I'm going to go all in for the benefit and in the interest of this other person. And at the same time, that other person is going to take everything that they have, all the resources, the time, talent, and treasure, and go all in on the best interest and the highest interest of the, other, of the first person, that principle of mutual submission changes lives and changes the world. Let me, let me tell you about it. When couples do this, when a husband and wife can do this, and say, I'm going to take my whole self, and it's not going to be me any longer. Paul tells us about this in Ephesians 5. Submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. Wives, to your husbands, yes, submit. Husbands, submit to your wife. In addition, love your wife. This principle of mutual submission out of one another for reverence to Christ. When the husband loves his wife completely and wholly with everything that he has for her highest and best interest, and she does the same for him, the entire dynamic of this relationship changes. You try this thing out with, with like a parent and a child, And now the kid knows that the parents are absolutely leveraging everything that they have for the benefit and the the highest and best interest of a kid. The kid picks that up. And in return, they're like, you know what? I'm a part of this family and I belong in this family. There's intimacy and there's closeness. And I'm going to give everything that I have for the benefit of the family and for my parents. The relationship dynamic is so deep, so fast. It's so close. You try this thing out at work with a boss who says, I am in. I am in for your highest and best interest. My time is yours. What kind of resources do you need to be successful at what I've asked you to do? And that changes the workplace. And when you have that kind of relationship with your Father in heaven, well, it's terrifying, isn't it? Because God God might ask for a lot more than you're willing to give. In fact, there is story after story of God asking for everything. And if that concerns you, good. That's what a real relationship is about. That's not just knowing about someone. That's knowing someone intimately and closely. And my only encouragement is this. If it scares you, Know this. This is the punchline. This is, this is the point. He went first. He went first. He asked for everything. And we will not lower the bar. As your pastor and friend, I want to be clear and honest with you that the bar is up here. He is asking for your whole life, time, talent, treasures, all of it laid off, leveraged for his benefit. But he's not asking you to do anything that he hasn't already done on your behalf. He went all in for you. And he said, I'm going to ask a lot. I'm going to do a lot. I am going all in. In fact, we tend to think about developing intimacy and closeness with God is like this lifelong human pursuit to try to find our way up to God, to build this relationship with God. No, no, far from it. This book is put together story after story after story about God trying to develop intimacy and closeness with us. He created us in the family. And then we as Adam and Eve pushed him away and walked out and held him at arm's length this entire history of humanity. 
And then it's God saying, I'm going to pull you out of Egypt, out of slavery. I'm going to shape you. I'm going to form you. I'm going to die for you. I'm never going to stop loving you. I'm like the father who, even though you divided and split up my life and ran away and squandered everything that I have on wild living, I'm going to watch over that hill day and night so that when you come back, I'm not going to walk. I'm going to run over and give you a hug. And the fattened calf is going down, and my ring and my robe is going on your finger and on your back. And when your older brother is outside in the field, bitter and angry because he slaved away performing miracles and driving out demons, all in the name of God the Father. God says, I'm the father who's going to go out and plead with him intimacy and closeness to bring him back in to the party so that we will celebrate forever and always. This is a story where God makes the first move and he makes the second move and he makes the last move. This is a story where he's outside knocking and he's going, I could huff and I could puff and I could blow this house down. But rather than barge in, I would much rather be invited. So will you invite him in? And if so, simply reply in your heart, this week, you have my time. Unstructured time. Or this week, you have my radical transparency. I will be real with you for the first time. Or this week, I will say yes to something that scares me. I want to invite you to stand up wherever you are. Let's pray together. God, you've been there since the beginning. And the beginning for you is a whole lot longer ago than the beginning for each one of us. And through it all, you have chased us and you have pursued us and you haven't lowered the bar of what you're looking for. God, but you found a way. Again and again, you have found a way. You have chased us through the high points of our whole life, those joys and those celebrations, and you have walked with us through the valley of the shadow of death, through sorrow and pain. And all that you ask in response is that we invite you in. And we give you an unstructured, honest attitude and heart that ends with yes before we even know what the question is. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.